Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rachel. How's it going? It's going good. I think we are continuing our listener feedback, uh, our, our jaunt through our listener feedback questions. We have a whole list of listener feedback questions that we've been meaning to get to, and we have put that on our agenda, and we are rolling through them. So what's the next question, Rachel? So this question is regarding actually one of our past episodes. She says, I listened to the podcast with Eric Enger and loved it. I'd like to learn more about his approach, but can't find anything online about the specific language system first approach. So I'm thinking it's something he made up and is doing in his district. It reminded me of what Deidre Dobbles and Kelly Key discussed on AAC in the Cloud in 2018. Are there any resources you can point me to? Thanks. So let's talk about this for a second. So Eric Enger, of course, if you haven't heard that episode, if you're a new listener, definitely go back and check that one out. It seems to be one that keeps coming up over and over and over again for people. But let's talk about how did I and Eric end up knowing each other and where did this all come from? Well, so Eric is out in Utah. And what happened once is that I was invited to come out and be a guest speaker out in Utah. And part of that presentation that I was doing, I brought up this notion of the specific language system first approach. As far as I know, I coined that phrase. I don't know that, you know, it's, it feels weird for me to say that, but like there wasn't a name for this sort of approach before. And so I mentioned it during this um, this particular presentation and Eric was my, my one of my contacts there and liaisons there. Like he, he and I, like he picked me up from the airport and dropped me off and we had dinner together, you know, those sorts of things. And so Eric was there during the presentation and he just kind of looked at me like, well, yeah, Chris, that's just how we do it, you know? And I was like, wait, you what? And so I didn't know other people were doing this. I didn't know. And he's like, well, yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that we wouldn't do it this way. And so what do we mean by it? What is this specific language system first approach? The idea here is that, Uh, you might say that a student walks in the front door of your school, they instantly get this app. There is no evaluation. There is no assessment. Everyone gets lamp words for life. Everyone gets uh, speak for yourself. Everyone gets prolo quo. Pick your app, but you've picked one and they get that first. And then the idea would be, well, unless it's not right for that student. And then we shift away from that. Like, well, we have LAMP first, but this kid has so many fine motor difficulties. They really need a larger icon size. We're going to shift away. We, we know that's not going to work for this kid. So it's you're not pigeonholed saying you have to do this. But the idea is that you're not waiting necessarily to get them some sort of AAC help and that you're waiting to do an assessment and maybe that goes on for months and months and months that maybe what's the validity of doing an assessment in the first place? There's lots of questions. Again, we've been talking about this for for ages on the podcast. So that's what his approach was. And that's what he sort of talked about is uh, he's not a speech therapist. He's a, a, he, he has a technology and special, I think, a, an education background. And he was like, well, that's sort of how other technology works, right? It's like, in a one-to-one environment in a school, everyone gets a Chromebook. And if that doesn't work for you, then we look for a laptop or we look for another system that, that might be better than a, or might meet your needs better than a Chromebook. Teachers, we typically, everyone gets a Windows machine or everyone gets a Mac in our school. We're at that, we're sort of that first. And then we have, well, you know, we, we do um, uh, outliers that don't, that doesn't work for. Another way to think of it would be like mass feature matching. So we've talked about feature matching a thousand times on this podcast, the idea that you'd look through the needs first and then you'd come up with different tools. 
well, so what are the needs of the masses? And then you make some little adjustments from there. Now, this has been controversial because when you first explain this to some people, it really gets their hackles up thinking, well, wait a second. That means there's a possibility a kid might not get the exact thing they need because you'd be putting the needs of the, the system first. But as long as you are being diligent about the fact that, yes, we know not every kid gets this uh, and that this tool would not work for everybody, then then you might be safe. You know, another way to think of it would be a multi-tiered system of supports. So in that sort of model or framework, you think of a tier one support is something that's available to everybody. You know, everybody gets text to speech. Everybody gets access to I've heard the joke, smiles are a tier one support, right? Everybody gets smiles and happy environment. Tier two is just certain groups of people would get. And maybe that's where this this lives would be in sort of a uh, certain classrooms would all get this app, you know? And then a tier three would be a specific, only this kid gets this specific thing. And forever, AAC has lived in tier three by doing individual assessments to getting individual situations or individual tools for, for kids. And what this approach sort of advocates for is let's looking at it as a, as a tier two approach. Everybody gets this first and then we adjust when we know that's not going to work for a particular student. And if we don't know, like, mm, at least we're not wasting time. We're actually working towards something. I have a question, Chris, because I think, and I'm asking this because I, I'm assuming that our listeners would, might have this question too. I feel like part of the process of an AAC assessment in most settings is deciding whether or not AAC is a good option for a student and then figuring out what the best option for technology is. Myself in my own practice, not, it's not the way that I roll. Everyone who comes through the door, I'm basically assuming technology will help them. And so it's more a question of what technology will help them best. But for you know settings who have to go through this candidacy model or this idea that you have to have certain qualifications to get AAC to start off with getting anything like how would that work and does this specific language system first idea kind of get rid of the candidacy model 100% first of all let's let's start here would you agree that AAC never hurts yes chris <laughs> right so if you start with that notion that it never hurts, then the only thing that that's left logically is that not providing AAC might hurt, <laughs> right? Yes. So if you're trying to do what's least dangerous for a student, you provide AAC. The question becomes, are you providing the wrong AAC? You know, and if that's the case, well, then maybe you're wasting someone's time because you you you've given them the wrong AAC. But even then. How often are you wrong? Do you know what I mean? So often have we talked about that, Rachel, that it's, um, you know, when you do a feature matching analysis and you put down all the needs of a student and then the columns along the top are, well, is, are we going to go with LAMP or ProLoquo or Speak for Yourself or Cough Drop or whatever? Oftentimes, the what comes out at the end of the day is they're all good options, you know, and it's 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 a matter of you know, not necessarily picking the perfect one. So maybe the perfect one is the one that most people can support better. And if that support better uh, helps the student better, then maybe even if somehow magically 
Prolo Quo is better than Lamp for this kid, Lamp actually is the one that comes out better because it could be supported better. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I completely agree. I think that we spend an enormous amount of time and resources on assessment. And if we take all of that time and we spend it on implementation and system-wide implementation, right? So I'm thinking through a school district, if everybody in that school district understands how to use that specific system, then of course, all students will be more supported and we won't run into the dilemma of, oh, like I've never seen that app before. Or we sh- I should say we would run into that less. Yes, exactly. Because most students have the same system. That's right. And you could build a, a system of support, not just in your school, but in your school district. So one of the times, so she, the, the, going back to the question here, she asked for resources. Like, hey, I Googled this and I couldn't find anything. <laughs> right, because I sort of made up a name for it. But that's not to say there aren't resources out there. Uh, so she mentioned Kelly Key and Deidre Dobbles. We had Kelly Key on this podcast. As far as I know, Kelly hasn't ever used those words, but her approach sort of aligns with this, you know? So we listen to that episode because we had Kelly Key here. I would say the Sarah Gregory episode, we talk about it a little bit. So you'd want to go and listen to the Sarah Gregory episode. And the Catherine Fredericks episode is another one where we brought it up. So it keeps coming up in our podcast. But beyond that, uh, going back to like a whole system approach, uh, a couple of years ago, I was asked to do a spotlight session at ATIA. It was uh, me and I think it was Vicki Clark and it was Gail Van Tatenhove. And we got to each have like 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, Carol Zangari asked us all to do 15 to 20 minutes at ATIA to present a challenge and then a solution. And the challenge that I presented was actually one that I don't think we talk about quite enough. And is a, I find a huge barrier to successful AAC. And that is the transition rate or the turnover rate of special ed teachers. We spend a lot of time teaching teachers how to use AAC and model on AAC. And if they leave after two or three years, well, you know, that it's a lot of training time and it really hurts the student. Similarly, the student now has this great team and we train them and they're so good at, at this team is just the perfect support. Oh, sorry, fifth grade, you leave. In sixth grade, you have to go to this new team that doesn't know what they're doing. But if we had made the entire system approach and that's what I sort of suggested in this talk, in this AAC spotlight talk at uh, ATIA. If the entire school district had sort of adopted one tool and used it most frequently, then the, the when you transition, the, there's a better chance that new team will know. Again, not perfect. You know, it's not perfect. But like you said, there's a better chance that that team might know the tool and how to support it. That talk, by the way, it's it, as far as I know, it wasn't recorded, but the slide deck, you can access it at bit.ly slash AAC Spotlight CB. That's bit.ly slash AAC Spotlight CB. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're making really great points here. I mean, we've talked about this, you know, both on air and off air, Chris, um, on what a, a really interesting and good idea this is. The other thing I'll say is it, it people are already doing this. <sighs> like you can only know so many different systems as one individual AAC, you know, specialist. And we just tend to go with what we know, right? For me to sit here and say like, I know every app 
inside and outside and I know all the features and like, it's just not true. I have the same handful of systems or apps that I feel comfortable with, that I trial more often. And, you know, that's the reality is that, you know, as much as we want to, you know, do feature matching and all these things and we try our best to do those things, it's still inevitable that we have the things that we feel comfortable with and that we know, and that's what we stick with. And possibly one of those reasons you feel that way is because they've worked. You've seen the success. You've seen the progress. Your data shows that they're working. You see another kid and they're similar. So you might even do the feature matching in your head. You know, I really advocate for when you're making a choice to try and make it a whole team approach so more people buy into the implementation. But I, I totally agree. So often people have felt shamed by that like well i only know one or two instead of let's let's you know one or two you know what i mean that's awesome let's go for that you know and i i'm i'm sort of done with that shame cycle and let's embrace the fact that you do know one or two lean into that but don't just live in that comfort zone right you got to stretch yourself and say well what's the new apps coming out what are the new features what app don't i know you still got to go push yourself there but you got to feel less guilty about not knowing every single feature of another every single app, especially with all the updates coming up. And I didn't know it did that. Like, it's too hard to maintain all of that realistically, you know. Um, and so many people don't do AAC as the only thing that they do. Right. I mean, I know you don't. Right. You don't. I don't. You know, um, so that's just one component of a larger scheme that we work in. So I think it's a time to embrace, you know, embrace the fact that you do know the handful that, you know, there are some times when those don't work. And be alerted to those. Don't try and force the square into the round hole. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes it doesn't work. Um, be aware of those and and recognize those biases and say, well, you know what? This kid, I don't think my go-to solution is always going, or my handful of go-to solutions is going to be the right tool. I got to go stretch, you know? Yeah. And that's, I think, inevitably, like, it will become clear, right? I think that's the whole point is that, you know, as long as we're advocating for our students and we want to see them making progress. Um, we know when a tool isn't necessarily working. And I find that in my own practice, even with tools that, you know, originally were really good for kids. I'm like, oh, like this is working. And then all of a sudden they have, you know, such amazing literacy skills that they're typing more often than they're using the, the grid. And they're just, they're just sitting in their, you know, keyboard area most of the time. And then I think, hmm, well, is this the most efficient thing? Is this tool now the best fit for this student? Um, it's the same thing. Um, I can imagine, you know, implementing something like this um, kind of a system-wide approach um, it would become clear if something isn't working. That, and that's one of the things that um, we talk about is, well, how do you choose the system? Like if you listen to that Eric Enger episode, Eric's like, so we do proloquo, you know, but I could make the argument that it should have been LAMP or it should have been something else. Um, you know, I think one way that you could do that is get a team together and analyze the, the different features. Again, kind of looking at a mass feature matching. Another way is that, AAC is not no longer new. So you could kind of look at having done a number of evaluations over years, what evaluation comes out in the wash most frequently? You know, what's what's our percentage of users of this app versus this app, this this app, you know? One comes out a little bit higher, then maybe that's the one you lean into. 
And I think also this happens naturally geographically. I think there's certain areas of the country that like go towards certain apps or systems. Um, and so, you know, myself in my own practice, I take that as a huge consideration whenever I'm recommending a system. And if people don't know that system, I'm less likely to recommend it because again, like we need everybody feel feeling comfortable and it goes, you know, back to this idea that of course it's feature matching for the student and what they need as far as the system, but it's also, you know, you have to take into consideration the communication partners because a student can have the best system in the world, but if they're not using it because they don't have a language input from the communication circle, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> they could literally have every feature they need, but if the adults around that student don't feel comfortable, then it's null and void because kids need Ada language input in order to use their devices. So it's just like, it's, it's a really interesting discussion. And I feel like we, we keep circling back to this for a reason, Chris. And you know, I'm, I'm excited that we had this question that we were able to answer today because it's really kind of like taking what we know about AAC or have been told or taught, and it's kind of flipping on its head, but the reality is we know that clinicians do not have enough time, right? Like time is, is the problem here. We don't have enough time to do, you know, the assessments. We don't have enough time to do the implementation training. Um, and so if we can help alleviate that for clinicians, I feel like we're, you know, definitely headed in the right direction. I couldn't agree more. Well, let's talk about today's episode, Chris. I was so excited. I had Karen Wilson on, who's a neuropsychologist. She is actually based in Los Angeles, which is how I know her. But uh, she was so nice to come onto our podcast and talk all about the work that she does. She works with a lot of students with dyslexia. And um, it's an area that I feel like with, within my own clinical practice, I'm always kind of like uncovering areas of speech therapy that I don't really know enough about. And I want to kind of like do a deep dive. That's my personality, which is how I got so interested in AAC. I had like a few clients where I was like, I really need to learn more about this. And then like, next thing I know, like, you know, I'm up at 3am reading like blog posts and, you know, trying to find trainings all over the country to like teach me more about AAC. So anyway, dyslexia is an area that I've been really interested in lately. And Karen is a specialist with dyslexia, but we talk a lot, not about dyslexia, but more about executive functioning skills and the technology that she uses in her practice. Practice, which I actually, when I was doing this interview, Chris, I thought a lot about you because she talks a lot about assistive technology tools uh, that can help students with reading and writing. So it was just a really interesting discussion. And I'm really excited that she was able to come on and talk with us. Oh, excellent. I have not heard the interview yet, but I'm going to make some predictions. All right. And we'll see if I get them right or wrong before the, does she mention Google Keep? Does she mention Read and Write for Google Chrome? Does she mention uh, Co-Writer Universal? I'm, I'm Snap and Read. I bet you those, those are some product names, but the idea is text-to-speech and again, Google Keep. You've, well, you've heard us talk about it before uh, as far as executive functioning, note-taking, turning uh, text that is uh, that is digital but not accessible into accessible. That's a whole I could geek out here. So I'm very curious, Karen, if I got it right. I'm very curious about this interview. I can't wait to hear it. Without further ado, here's my interview with Karen Wilson. People all over the world need augmentative and alternative communication. Despite the global need, some areas of the world don't have access to the same resources as others. Low-tech AAC can be a functional, cost-effective way to bring communication to more people universally. 
Low-tech tools are also used widely by high-tech AAC users to have a backup or alternative means to communicate. These low-tech tools often get torn, crushed, crumpled, soaked, or otherwise destroyed easily. They aren't often made with durability in mind. Enter PixiePal, a durable low-tech solution. Place printed symbols in transparent plastic containers called Pixie Snaps, which fit snugly into a portable carrying case. Each case allows for three double-sided Pixie Snaps, giving people six surfaces to interact with. The carrying case acts like a book, allowing a user to flip between multiple pages of symbols. This innovative design makes PixiePal the perfect, portable, customizable, and splash-proof low-tech solution. You can check it out for yourself by following at PixiePal on Facebook. But that's not all. PixiePal has partnered with some amazing organizations, such as the Nika Project, the Kaizora Center, OIC Cambodia, and many more to help bring functional and affordable AAC to anyone in the world. PixiePal has been a UNICEF Champions of Children supporter since 2019. The first generation of PixiePal is blue, in tribute of UNICEF's work worldwide. A PixiePal crowdfunding campaign has already launched. You can follow, comment, and share the initiative by going to PixiePal.com. That's P-I-C-S-E-E-P-A-L.com. That's pick like picture, see like with your eyes, and pal like a friend. Send them a direct message and register your interest for one of the first PixiePals ever made. Each time a PixiePal is purchased, another PixiePal will be donated to one of these trusted partners. The goal is to donate 1 million PixiePals worldwide. To join us in being part of this global movement, go to facebook.com backslash PixiePal and hit the follow button to help bring AAC to everyone in the world who needs it. Black women and girls of color are underrepresented in professions related to science, technology, engineering, and math, also known as STEM for short. Imagine the impact changing this fact could have not only on the lives of black women and girls of color, but on the world as a whole. Young and preteen girls of color need more experiences and opportunities to learn technology and computer programming skills that can fuel curiosity, ingenuity, and passion. With the proper guidance, inspiration, and mentorship, Black girls and girls of color can become leaders in fields related to STEM. Black Girls Code is an organization that has a singular mission. It aims to introduce programming and technology to a new generation of coders, coders who will become builders of innovative technologies and of their own futures. Go to blackgirlscode.com to learn more about how you can volunteer or donate to support their mission. Black Girls Code is working to increase the number of women of color in the digital space by empowering girls of color ages 7 to 17 to become innovators in STEM fields, leaders in their communities, and builders of their own futures through exposure to computer science and technology. They are working to provide African-American youth with the skills to occupy jobs related to computing and to train 1 million girls by 2040. Check out their website at blackgirlscode.com or follow them on Twitter at blackgirlscode to learn about upcoming events, volunteer opportunities, apparel, and so much more. With your help, Black Girls Code will reach their goal and will see millions of young women of color achieve their dreams and change the world for the better. You can make a difference by going to blackgirlscode.com today.
Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Dr. Karen Wilson. Karen, how are you? I'm great, Rachel. How are you? I am so good. So backstory, Karen and I have been colleagues for a while now. We both live in Los Angeles. Karen is an amazing neuro, uh, clinical neuropsychologist here that I oftentimes refer clients to, and we've had the pleasure of connecting um, at business conferences and you know networking events. Um, so I'm really excited to finally have you on the podcast today, Karen. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So let's just start off by just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Sure. So I am a clinical neuropsychologist and I operate in West Los Angeles. I see um, children between the ages of five all the way through 18, but I also sometimes see adults who are struggling with learning differences. I probably see most of the kids who are struggling with things like ADHD and dyslexia, dysgraphia, and language-based learning disorders. Those are probably the kids that are coming to my practice most frequently. And I also do clinical supervision at UCLA out of their Medical Psychology Assessment Center where I supervise postdocs and interns who are also doing evaluations for children and adolescents. Love it. Love it. I actually, so I think that partially when I moved here from the, the East Coast, which is where I'm from, I'd say, I guess it's six years. Wow. It feels crazy that it's that long. Um, six years ago, I didn't really know about neuropsychologists and what they do. Um, so can you just explain like, why would someone go to a neuropsychologist? Sure. So neuropsychology is an interesting field. It's an intersection between biology and psychology is the way I kind of look at it. And it really has a brain-based approach to psychology. And so when you're thinking about neuropsychology, it's kind of looking at um, the brain and behavior, the relationship between the brain and behavior. And so we kind of do a deep dive into the brain pathways that underlie a lot of difficulties that people might face from traumatic brain injuries, but all the way to neurodevelopmental disorders, which the research shows is caused by a difference in the wiring of specific areas of the brain. And so when we look at um, individuals who are struggling with, with cognition or behaviors or with learning, we kind of relate that to how the brain is organized and how it's organized differently. And then we tackle it from that perspective. And so if someone um, came to you, they, you would typically do an assessment, correct? Correct. Yes. And so we would do a full comprehensive evaluation. And most of the times when people are coming in for a full neuropsychological assessment, it's because they really don't have an idea of why a child is struggling. And so unlike a child who's maybe two or three and has no language or has minimal language where you, you know that you want to assess for speech and language, when people come to see me, it's because they've tried different things and there's struggles in a number of areas and they don't know why the child is struggling. They don't know if it's speech and language or if it's attention or if it's learning or if it's something else. And so they want to do a deep dive into a number of cognitive domains to rule out different things and also to determine, you know, the source of the difficulties so that they can move forward with an appropriate treatment plan. Right. And I think that, you know, the referrals that I send your way, it's when I have kids that I'm like, oh, like it's just a puzzle. Right. And I feel like, you know, figuring out what's really at play, because as you mentioned, attention is a huge piece. Sometimes a lot of executive functioning, um, which I know that you guys like deep dive into, um, you know, the executive functioning piece. 
Um, but figuring out, you know, are there morphological processing issues? Are, you know, there photological processing issues? Um, which as speech language pathologists, we can often, you know, figure out as well. But I love the, the deep dive that you're able to do um, to get so much valuable information and in those reports that you, you write. Yes. And I think one of the other things is sometimes we get referrals from speech and language pathologists, from educational therapists who've been working with kids for a while, and they realize that they're not seeing the gains that they would typically see when they are implementing a treatment plan. So they suspect that there's something else going on, that in addition to the dyslexia or in addition to the language delay, there's something else that's interfering with their ability to really fully benefit from the intervention. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about ADHD because I feel like that's a that's a term and a diagnosis that we hear thrown around a lot. Um, you know, I think people generally have a sense of what it is, but you know, when when you explain ADHD to a parent, what what are you saying? What I usually say is that when kids or adults struggle with ADHD, it's because they are having more difficulty than others their age with paying attention over an extended period of time, with inhibiting distractors in their environment, with kind of inhibiting their own body movement. And those difficulties are interfering with their daily functioning. And so, you know, oftentimes you'll hear in kind of the, in the world that doesn't everybody have ADHD? Well, no, they don't. <laughs> it's about five to 10% of the population who struggles in this way. And it can be mild, moderate, or severe. So people, it'll manifest differently depending on the severity of ADHD. And we used to, and I often tell families that they used to think that kids who have ADHD can't pay attention. And what the research has shown over the last decade is that they can pay attention, they just can't keep on paying attention when something is no longer interesting to them so that they can do really well on preferred tasks, but they can't sustain their attention on non-preferred tasks. And that's what life is about, right? It's about geography class and history class <laughs> yes. and things that are not interesting. Yes, they can play Lego for hours and be on an iPad or play video games for hours, but when they have to really persist with a non-preferred task, that's where things fall apart for many of them. Yeah, I, I oftentimes have parents say, well, they can play video games for hours and they have attention on the screen, but like th then they go to do their math and they won't do their math. And I think that you touched on a, a point that I was actually going to ask you about. So I'm happy you already, you, you, you jumped ahead and you already anticipated my question. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to think about the research that shows us now that it's really paying attention with things that you're not interested in, which as you mentioned, that's, that's kind of life, right? That's like a, that's, exactly that's like a, most of our days. <laughs> that's exactly what life is. And it's also the ability to inhibit distractors that people who don't struggle with attention issues take for granted. You know, I can be sitting in an office building and have a conversation with you and I can filter out the fire trucks driving by, people walking by if I have an open door, you know, notifications that are coming up on my phone. But for someone with ADHD, they can't filter out that information. So they're constantly paying attention to the most interesting thing in the room. And in kids who are bright, oftentimes the most interesting thing is in their head. It's something that they're going to do on the weekend, something that they're looking forward to, so they can look like they're paying attention until the teacher calls on them in class. And then they're, what, what, what'd you say? And they have no idea what was happening at that particular time. 
Mm -hmm. Are there any strategies that you recommend to parents and, and teachers that can help with ADHD? We realize that kids have this diagnosis, but what does it actually look like when we're actually trying to support them in a classroom? Right. I think it differs depending on the child. And again, because of the severity of it, but a lot of times you can address it through accommodations in the classroom. So you don't want the child with ADHD to be sitting beside an open door or beside the window or beside the child who you know has behavioral issues or is going to be very chatty and be very distracting. So you can be strategic in terms of where a child is sitting in the classroom. You can have little reminders for kids to pay attention. It's usually you want a signal between the teacher and the student so that the child doesn't get embarrassed by being called out for not paying attention or reminded to focus in a way that brings attention to him or herself yeah. um, in, a, in the classroom. So those are a couple things that they can do. And also because students with ADHD have difficulty with what we call working memory, which is holding on to instructions and directions, a lot of information at any given time, and they're more likely to be distracted. We want to break down instructions into smaller chunks. So instead of, I often tell parents, you know, if you tell a child, I want you to go upstairs, put on your pajamas, brush your teeth, get a book, and I'll be up there. And then you go upstairs and they're playing Lego in their room because it was hard for them to hold all that information in their working memory while they were walking up the stairs. And then they also got distracted by the, the shiny Lego that they wanted to play with. And so if you break it down into, okay, go and brush your teeth. And as soon as you do that, I'll time you. And as soon as you do that, then we'll go on to the next thing. And oftentimes that's helpful to break yeah. up those tasks. Yeah. And also from the, the communication side, I feel like teaching the compensatory strategies that you need something repeated right? Because I think that building that awareness is oftentimes um, challenging for kids. They don't even realize that they lost attention. And so I think that building awareness, like, you know, not only with, I told you a direction and it looks like you need me to say it again because you forgot what to do or you weren't paying attention. Um, so I oftentimes will do that with, with the clients that I work with. Um, and also just talking about like, what does distracted even mean? Cause I feel like as adults, we throw that term around to kids like, Oh, you're getting distracted. Uh, you know, what does being distracted mean? And so sometimes I'll be very overt in my sessions. Like, you know, I'll be pretending to text on my phone or like I'll put really loud music on while they're in the middle of a task. Um, things that are very overt. So I can say like, Oh, was the music distracting you? And you know, <laughs> all these opportunities to talk about what does being distracted mean? What are things we can do when we feel like somebody, someone else is doing something that is distracting to us? Um, so I think that just like, you know, giving kids the tools to, you know, empower them in the classroom when they need help. Um, you know, I've seen a beautiful thing. I saw one of my clients the other day. Um, I did a school observation and there was a student who was, you know, doing something that was um, bothering that student. And um, the, the student actually got up and moved. And I feel like that's a great strategy, right? To like move, they were trying to complete their, their assignment and realized there was a distraction and decided to move their body to a different seat um, in order to try to complete their task. So that was like a, a magical moment um, to observe oh. in a classroom. It shows good awareness. Yeah. And you know, particularly with older kids, it's good to bring them into that awareness mm -hmm. because like you said, oftentimes they don't even realize that they're being distracted. And, you know, with technology, it can be a distraction, particularly if students, older students are working on their computers and they have all these notifications and they have their cell phone beside them. 
and that they're constantly being taken off task. And then when they don't realize that this increases the time it takes to complete the work that they're trying to do. Because, you know, we think that we can multitask and pay attention to a number of things at the same time, but we can't. Our brains can't. We're actually micro switching from task to task. So you check the notification, then you come back, and then you have to reread what it is that you were reading. And then it goes off again, and you continue to do this, and it just stretches out the time that it takes to complete a task. And then you're not encoding the information in a cohesive way. Karen, you just explained like my day to day. <laughs> I'm like, oh, like I got a like a Facebook yeah. alert. I'm like, oh, like I got a new email. And I'm like, what yeah. was I doing? Yeah. It's hard. It's hard with technology. Um, speaking really? of technology, let's talk about some of the tools sure. that you find useful in your practice. Obviously, this is a podcast dedicated to technology. Um, what are you using and what are you loving? Um, and let's talk about, you know, setting parameters around technology and all, all the things. Yes. So, so since we're talking about ADHD, I'll start there. Um, I, I, one of the things I love are mindfulness apps because there's a lot of research showing that mindfulness really helps with decreasing anxiety, helps with self-regulation, which we see a lot in kids with ADHD. And it also helps with focus. So oftentimes if kids can use a mindfulness app before they start their work, before they start their day or before they go to bed, that's often very helpful in focusing, increasing focus, decreasing anxiety, and really getting kids ready to learn. And so there's a number of, of mindfulness apps that are really helpful and I recommend to young kids all the way through adolescents and adults. So that's something yeah. that I, I love that. And I love this idea because I oftentimes will do, I do a lot of coaching with parents and it's, you know, I say, well, what's, what's your current struggle? And everyone's like homework. <laughs> so I feel like that could be a really great exercise, um, doing some type of mindfulness right before it's homework time, you know, just to get kids, you know, into their bodies and awareness in the present moment. They're not, you know, thinking about the video game that they were just playing and then trying to transition to a non-preferred task. So I love using mindfulness. Um, I just got a really great book. It's called, I think it's called Breathe Like a Bear. Have you ever seen this? No, I have not. Oh, I'll have to send it to you. I will definitely link in the show notes too. Um, so it's a, it's a breathing book, but it's made for kids and there's all different kinds kinds of uh, breath. So there's hot chocolate breath where you cup your hands and you, you know, pretend to blow on your hot chocolate to cool it down so you can take a sip. Um, so it's these like guided meditations that you can read for kids to work on that deep breathing. Um, you know, I have a lot of kids that sometimes have challenges with emotional regulation and um, they get upset and I can start to see them escalating and I'm able to say like, oh no, like, you know, what kind of breath do you want? Do you want a hot chocolate breath? Do you want a candle breath? There's all these different kinds of breasts. Um, and that allows them to tap into one of the strategies that we practiced. Um, so some, some kids, I work on breathing every single session, every yes. single session we, we, and it doesn't, they don't have to be escalated, right? It's like, we need to practice these skills when kids are, you know, calm. It's not like a teaching opportunity to like whip out a book when a child's getting escalated emotionally and say like, now I'm going to teach you about, you know, how to do deep breathing. <laughs> right. Right. And absolutely. Because I think that's, that's such an important point is that you teach them these skills when they're calm so that when they are upset, they can employ those skills, right? They can pull them out, those tools that they have available to them. So I think that's really, and it's been really effective for a number of kids that I work with. Yeah, I know. Actually, so Headspace has a 
kids version now. Um, so I had, Headspace is a amazing app. It's so comprehensive now. I, I have been using that app for years and to see how it's evolved over time is really cool. Um, the developer, what's his name? Andy, Andy Petticombe, I think is his name. He actually lives in Venice, which is where I live. Um, and I'm always like, where is he? Like I want, I would love to run into to him uh, because for, you know, for years I've been listening to his guided meditations. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, there's Headspace, which is a really good one. Um, there's a lot of really great mindfulness apps out there. Right. I think Calm has a version for kids as well. Yes. And I really like um, Stop, Breathe, Think, which is mm-hmm. another app as well that's kind of geared towards kids that has been really helpful. Yeah, I love it. So what else What else do you have in your tool toolbox? Yes. And well, interestingly, and there's not a lot of research on this yet. And so I think we're just figuring out if it works, but there's um, the Revive. Have you heard of the Revive watches? No. Oh, they're, yeah. They're like little Fitbits. They're little watches that, that um, serve as reminders for kids to stay on task when they have ADHD. So there's a little buzz that goes off that, well, you can have a little text message that says focus or start your homework or time to take a break. And so... Uh, they've done some work and some research. I think it was funded by the U.S. Department of Education to look at um, using this watch to really cue kids who struggle with attention to get back on task. I and actually so that's something that's 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 out there that we're think we're just starting to figure out the extent I, to which it's Yeah, I love that. I actually was. And I can't remember what where this came out of, but there was some research going on with using Apple Watches mm. as a way. I think this was with individuals with autism. Um, Apple Watches with text prompts to yes. remind them what they needed to do. So you could schedule in, especially for you know students in in middle and high school who need to. You know, we, we're trying to get them to be able to transition from math class to science class. Um, they're they're able to send textual prompts um, to just increase independence, to stay on task, and so that's what this sounds like. Um, I actually have a smart watch, and it it reminds me to move. Um, it's like I don't know how I don't know how many I think it's every like thirty minutes or something like that. It'll just go like buzz, and it'll say like <laughs> move. Um, and so I feel like that would be amazing for kids yeah. who are struggling to you know even have the awareness to say like oh I, I lost you know I lost track of what I was doing. Yes, and it's great because you, parents can program messages, so you can say don't forget your backpack, things like that, which I think is really helpful for kids who struggle with with focus, get distracted easily, and also have these working memory difficulties. Love. I have to look into that. I'm really excited that you shared that. What else do you got for me? I keep them coming, Karen. (laughs) Um, Then there's a lot of tools for dyslexia because, you know, there's 40 to 50% comorbidity between dyslexia and ADHD. Mm -hmm. and, And there are a lot of tools that are now available for kids who struggle and have been available for a while. And obviously you always have the fallback on the audiobooks. Learning Ally is a great source for, you know, textbooks that can be converted into audiobooks and things like that. Um, but there are also other, because kids with AD, with dyslexia also struggle with with writing. There's a number of text to speech applications which you're probably familiar with. Things like Natural Reader, the Kurzweil yeah. program, things like that that have been really helpful for kids who struggle with getting their ideas out on paper because. What I see is that there are so many kids who struggle with with written expression, mm-hmm. struggle with spelling, and because they struggle with spelling, they write as little as possible. And you've probably seen this. Yes. And they've got all these great ideas in their head, but it doesn't come out. 
right? Mm-hmm. So we want to get them um, to get those ideas from their head onto paper. And so, you know, dictation software helps with that, um, with getting that information out on paper, and then they can reorganize the text. But then sometimes they don't have access to the text to read, to take in the information. And that's where the text-to-speech applications are so helpful, where they can scan, you know, textbooks are scanned, and then they can just listen to the textbook. And, you know, Kurzweil Programs also has that text-to-speech application. And they're getting better and better where you can, you know, download and you can highlight and you can, um, again, it just increases access to the information. And it really levels the playing field. You know, I often tell parents who have a child who's just diagnosed with dyslexia that children with dyslexia often have difficulty learning to read. Mm-hmm. And that kind of stage of learning to read lasts for a longer time than other kids who don't have dyslexia. Mm-hmm. But kids who don't have dyslexia get to the point where they're no longer learning, learning to read, they're reading to learn. Mm-hmm. And when kids have dyslexia, it interferes with them making that transition to reading to learn. And so the text-to-speech applications help with that. Right. And so it's like they're still able to learn as they're catching up with reading, right? Right. right. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I, I'm, go ahead. Oh, and I, what I also often tell parents is that you don't want them to be over-reliant on the audiobooks. You want them to read along mm-hmm. because otherwise they, because you still want them to learn to read, Right. Um, and you want them to be able to catch mistakes that they would have made in, a, in the reading of spe- specific words because of difficulties with phonological processing. And that will increase um, recognition of words when they come across them um, in text later on. So you want them to use the audiobooks, use the text-to-speech software, but you also want them to read along while they're using these tools. What would you say to a parent, because I, I oftentimes come into um, some challenges with parents who say, well, I don't want them listening to audiobooks. I want them reading. Like there's just this like kind of closed off mentality that if we use some type of tool that they won't learn, which I'm happy that you brought up the over-reliance, right? Yes, we don't want them, you know, just just listening to audiobooks and not like seeing text, you know. But what would you say to a parent who's very resistant to using a tool to help support their their child? I would say that comprehension is, is where you want them to be in terms of reading. You want them to understand the information. Mm-hmm. And kids who have dyslexia, all of their effort is going into decoding those words on the page. Mm-hmm. And by the time they get through sounding out all the words on the page and all of their energy has gone into that process, then they, can't, they, they don't understand what it is that they've just read, right? And so what you want them to do is understand what it is they read because then they can start making connections and then they can engage in critical thinking. But you can't get to that level of, you know, cognitive functioning if you're still stuck on what does this word say? Is it experience? Is it experiment? Is it expect? Mm -hmm. You can't get to the sentence, the paragraph, tying different paragraphs together, the chapter, if you're still stuck on and understanding what a word says. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's where, you know, we need to really, when we're looking at our students, see, you know, what is the comprehension? Because I think oftentimes, like, and especially with closed tasks where it's like, 
read this paragraph and fill in some multiple choice answers. You know, I think that those are not a good reflection of what a student's actually comprehending. Um, you know, kids get really good sometimes at deductive reasoning and they can look at three answers and be like, well, it's not that, it's not this, it's probably this, which is a good skill, right? Mm -hmm. But I oftentimes find that, um, especially my students with autism, they're real great at multiple choice, um, you know, but they can't really explain the rationale behind why they're answering the question. They can't really point to context clues in a text to understand uh, or to describe why it is that they're choosing that answer. And so I think it's really important for us as clinicians to, to really tap into that comprehension piece and make sure that they're really understanding the text that they're reading. Right. And that also, when, they, when kids can understand what they're reading, they're more engaged. Yep. They're more engaged. They're more excited about learning. And it increases their confidence mm -hmm. because now they can connect ideas in a way that they couldn't if they're highly focused on just decoding the words on the page. And since we're kind of on the topic, we're talking a lot about literacy, right? And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are because oftentimes we know from research that children who have articulation or phonological, you know, delay with their speech, right? Their speech clarity is not uh, where it needs to be developmentally. We know those kids are more likely to have challenges um, with learning how to read and decoding. Um, so what are some, some suggestions that you would give uh, to, to maybe working with younger kids to both work on those phonological processing and uh, skills like that, but also to make sure that they continue to love reading and books. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like very young kids, you know, you give a baby a book and they get excited to look through the pages. And then sometimes that, that goes away, right? And kids mm -hmm. start not liking reading. Um, and so what would you, well, what are some suggestions or uh, you know, strategies that you would, would say are good to help, you know, ensure that kids are continuing to love reading? Yes, I think that's a really good point. And like you said, when kids are really young, they love being read to. And I think if you make reading part of a child's routine from an early age, then you can then continue the love of reading. And so you make it part of their bedtime routine from when, when they're really young and they move from you reading to them, to them read, to co-reading, right? Yeah. And, but you don't make it a stressful thing. You start by asking them, would you like to look at this word? And you identify words that they've learned. This is a word that you've learned in school. You see it here on the page and you kind of connect the reading process that they're learning at school to the books that you're reading at bedtime. And so again, you move from you reading to co-reading to them reading and you just make it part of their routine. And, and you know, if it, particularly if it's right before bedtime, you make a decision, how, how many pages do you want to read tonight? Mm -hmm. And so they have some say in what the reading is going to look like. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're going to have to do reading for academics, mm -hmm. but you want to keep that enjoyment of reading. And even if they say, you know, I don't feel like reading tonight, I'm tired, well, let me read to you. And so yeah. again, the book is there, they're still being having access to the information and they see you reading. So you're modeling reading and in in, in what that brings to them. You touched on so many great points that I want to reiterate. <laughs> One, I think that we children learn more from what you are than what you teach. So Absolutely. if they see you reading, um, not only to them, but also, you know, I'm excited about this new book that I got at the library. I can't wait to read it tonight before bed. Um, I think that that goes a long way with kids. Um, of, of course, you mentioned the routine, right? If we get things 
you know, habituated into our daily routines, we're more likely to, you know, continue. And I think that you mentioned a really great point that, you know, we oftentimes are doing story time and right before bed, shared reading, and then somehow that like slips away sometimes, right? It's like as kids get older and they start learning to read, we're not, you know, sitting and reading with them. Um, And I, and I love that suggestion. If a student says they're too tired to read or they don't feel like it, like, well, I'll read, you know, and what a great activity to, you know, share with your child and, you know, bond with them um, over a really exciting book that you get to to share together. Absolutely. And I think when kids are also very young, it's a great time to help them to adopt a growth mindset and, and relate that to reading. Because, you know, when I, my, my son is five, he's in kindergarten. And when he was learning to read and he saw his eight-year-old, seven-year-old sister at the time, she can read, but I can't read. And I would add, we would add the yet at the end. You can't read yet, right? But if you keep working at it, you will be able to read. And, you know, at the time we don't, we don't know if it's going to be a difficult process for him or if it's going to be an easy process for him because he was just learning. And a lot of parents don't know what that process is going to look like for their child. But if you help children at a very early stage develop a growth mindset and they tie practice and, you know, effort into the outcome, then that can also be very helpful and, and help them to know that learning something comes with challenging, it's hard to learn something new, but it becomes easier if you continue to practice over time and point to point out to a child, you're getting so much better at this. You know, before you could only read these two words and now you can read all the words in this sentence. And I think mm-hmm. that reward is also reinforcing and increases the motivation to continue reading and to try. Yeah, I love that. I actually, I have a student that I'm working with right now. She's a kindergartner. No, she's first grade. And reading has become challenging for her because she has a lot of phonological processing issues. And I also think that she has very... um, she, She doesn't understand... She thinks that everyone in her class is reading perfectly right? It's like that, that whole idea of like, well, everybody else is doing it great and I'm not doing a good job, which is not the reality, right? And so oftentimes what I talk about with her is, you know, everyone in your class is still learning how to read and everybody has different things that they're good at and things that, you know, maybe are a little bit harder. Um, you know, that's why you come to me, right? We come because she always, she always, she doesn't want to work on reading or like the, you know, the, the spelling things that we do, the phonological processing things that we, we work on. She always like avoids that at all costs because it's hard. And I say, that's why I'm here though. I'm here to to practice the things that are hard in my, you know, room so that you can leave and go to your classroom and they're not going to be so hard because we've already practiced those things. That's so great. And I think it's, it's really helpful for them to understand your role in helping them. And oftentimes that can alleviate the anxiety for kids who are struggling. And I often make the comparison to a lot of kids who are going to be starting with either a speech and language pathologist or an educational therapist, that it's like a coach. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, the people who are the best in their field, Simone Biles has a coach. Michael Phelps had a coach, you know, these LeBron James has a coach. Mm -hmm. And so, and they practice, you know, they don't just show up on the court for an NBA game. They've been practicing throughout the week and working with their coach on developing their skills. And why should it be any different for reading and schoolwork? Right. And and sometimes when kids make that connection, it's helpful for them to understand. 
Right. And it's not just like, I have to go to the special teacher because, you know, I'm not able to understand the same way that everybody else does. It's like, you know, we all could benefit from having coaches in different areas that we find challenging. Um, And the other thing that I was thinking about when you mentioned the growth mindset was showing and talking about having an open dialogue with kids about how hard it is for you to do some things, right? So I always talk about this in relation to memory. If I am ever asking a child to do any type of auditory memory, working memory tasks, uh, I have like such a bad memory and I'll be very honest. I'll be, okay, you be the teacher, right? And you tell me what to do and they give me like a three-step direction that I can't follow. (laughs) And they're like, you're just playing. I'm like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, but what I do is, and then I talk through the strategies that I use, right? I write it down. I remember keywords, you know, all these things we can do almost think alouds with kids. So they're able to hear the processing that we go through, the compensatory strategies that we've developed. Um, And I think that can be really powerful for kids too, because they're like, Miss Rachel can't do this? What? And they, they feel better about the fact that maybe there's something that they're struggling with um, as well that, you know, even adults have a hard time with. Right. And it normalizes the struggle, right? Mm-hmm. That everybody struggles with something and what you struggle with might be different than what I struggle with, but we're all trying to be better at the thing that is difficult for us. And this is why we need these tools to help us along. And this is why we need these people in our lives to help us through that process to get better. Love, love, love. Any other tools that you haven't mentioned or technology things that you think um, our there, listeners would love? Well, I think there's some, some we talked about this, this speech to the text-to-speech software. I also like um, for older kids, the note-taking apps, things like Notability has been helpful for a lot of kids. Yeah. Um, those students who can, who can write their notes and then also pull in diagrams using PDF, highlight, write over things. That's been very helpful. Um, a lot of students like the live scribe pen. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably familiar with where they can take notes on paper, and but it also records the lesson. So when they're reading back their notes, they can tap on the paper and it can play back what the teacher was saying at the time that they took the note. So if they didn't get all the information, then they can review it later. And yeah. so that's been really helpful for a number of students that I've, that I've worked with. And particularly when they have working memory issues or they can't write down, they can't write as quickly because of either fine motor issues or dysgraphia. And so that's often very helpful in helping them to later reorganize and take in all the information and integrate the information that the teacher has um, shared with them in the class with the notes that they've taken. Because sometimes the kids will look at their notes and say, what is this? Why did I write this? And they don't remember, you know, it's out of context. And so that's often very helpful. Love. They also have these reader pens where before students had to rely on teachers reading them the questions for a test. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that would mean that they'd have to be taken out of the classroom. But now they have these pens that can scan the text, like scan a word problem, Mm-hmm. And they, and it's hooked up to headphones. And so they can hear the instructions that they may not be able to read on the page. And therefore, they can answer it right there and be in the classroom with the rest of the students and not have to be pulled out for a reader. So for these types of tools that kids can use in the classroom, what do you think is the best way to integrate these? Is this something that you, you know, request your school district to help support? Is this something that, you know, parents find it is useful at home and they try to get the classroom to use it? What's the best 
strategy of a, uh, for parents getting, you know, kids using these types of technologies. Right. I think the first step is talking to the child to see, is this something that they would use? <laughs> because <Right>. you can, <laughs> parents can go, um, you know, go f- full ahead and talk to the teachers and try and get this written into IEPs and to mm-hmm. educational plans. But the, if the student says, there's no way I'm wearing headphones in class while I'm taking the test because everyone is going to look at me, then it's not appropriate for that child. Right. Right. And so you have to have the student on board first Mm -hmm. and then say, is this something you think would be helpful? Would you use it in the classroom? Would you use it when you're taking a test? And if the answer is yes, I think that would be very helpful. Then you move forward with making the request to the school. If it's a a public school, then you go through the IEP process or informally with the teacher first. And in a lot of our independent schools, it comes with an education plan um, that's worked out for that particular student who's struggling. I love that. You also mentioned notability, which is so funny. Karen, I'm literally using it right now. (laughs) I was like, wow. How do you you like it? I love it. And I actually got an Apple pencil. I guess at this point, it's been, you know, four or five months since I've had it. But I have to say it has transformed my practice because what I do is, you know, I'll, if I'm doing uh, a reading comprehension worksheet. I don't have to print things out anymore. So I'll just, you know, screenshot it. It'll go right to Notability. You can, you know, do so much integration with different apps from Notability. I can open things. I can, you know, select certain pages and then I'm able to write on top of it. So, you know, students love like when they get to use my Apple Pencil and my, you know, fancy iPad to fill in a worksheet. Uh, we, we highlight text. There's so many different things that you can do. You can add audio. Um, which is really great. Um, so these are just, you know, a few of the many things that you can do with Notability. Um, I just love, love, love using it. I love it too. And so many students just love that tool and find it extremely helpful. Yeah. I mean, I just like, and also I just organize my whole life on it. So it's like, <laughs> yes, I have my clinical stuff. I have like, you know, doctor's things, right? Like, you know, when you get your lab work, like I will integrate all of that and I have all these tabs that are organized. Um, so it just really keeps me organized and I'm able to not waste paper, which I also love. Right. Um, so yeah, I definitely would recommend looking into notability. Um, and ever since I got the Apple pencil, it's just like <laughs> game changer, right? Like I would never write on paper ever again. I love this. <laughs> So Karen, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate all of your feedback today. Um, Such great tools that you shared, strategies. The conversation was awesome. Um, There's one thing actually that we always ask people who come on this podcast, um, and I should have prepped you in advance for this, but if you had a billboard that every clinician could see, what would your billboard say? My billboard. Yes. Something you want all clinicians to remember or know? All clinicians to know. Um, I would say that we all need a coach. Love. We all need a coach. Yes. And exactly. It normalizes it, right? Um, We always are talking on this podcast about um, this idea that you know, especially if we specialize in technology, we're not experts, right? That doesn't help serve the people that we're working with. If we go into a classroom and they're like, well, Rachel's the expert. Rachel should know what to do, right? We're coaches. We help, we collaborate, uh, we inspire, we do all these things that, you know, coaches do. And when we take and adopt that coaching mentality, we have so much more success with both the students that we're working with and the parents and teachers. 
Right. And I think if we convey that message to students, again, it just normalizes mm -hmm. what it is that they're experiencing, that we all have our challenges. And again, challenges differ for each person. And we all need people to help us through those struggles. And the, the silver lining is on the other side of the challenge is, you know, success and whatever that looks like. And that'll look different for different kids. But um, that's the hope is that those struggles will will dissipate, things will become easier. And again, the whole goal when we're using these tools with kids who are struggling with learning or processing issues or language is that we want them to have confidence in their own abilities. We want them to have independence, to increase their level of independence and to enjoy the learning process and be motivated to continue to learn in spite of things that are difficult for them. Ah, oh, I love it, I love it. Karen, where can people find you online if they want to connect? Um, so they can reach me on Twitter. I'm one of those people who still loves Twitter. Chris, our co my co-host, loves Twitter. He's like a big Twitter guy. I still love Twitter. So I'm at Dr. Karen I. Wilson on Twitter. I'm also at Dr. Karen I. Wilson on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. And they can also reach me if they have questions specifically via email at drkiwilson at westlaneuro.com. Awesome. And we'll definitely link to those in the show notes. Karen, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Rachel. Amazing. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Mado, joined by Dr. Karen Wilson. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question. What is communication? You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.